Hello, I am Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands, England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Hello, and welcome to what I hope is going to be one of the most interesting hours of your life. My guest on this episode is Stephen Hibbs. Stephen is a haematology registrar in East London and has PhD funding to start some work on sickle cell crisis from a social science perspective. Stephen's passion is about getting unusual voices heard in research. He's also been involved uh, in the BSH annual meeting program committee and came up with the idea of the crucible, which I recently took part in. He's been involved in the BSH Global Special Interest Group and has written some guideline amendments for um, haematological practices in South Sudan. He's also um, authored a paper for the James Lind Alliance entitled Setting Priorities for Research in Blood Donation and Transfusion, which essentially is the result of a uh, consultation period with patients and uh, clinicians about what matters most to them. Uh, in uh, future questions for transfusion research. He's also a scientific editor and essayist for Hemisphere, which is the open access journal of the European Haematology Association. He's recently written on bone marrows in Hemisphere, um, talking about how common pain is and what we should be doing better. If you're a practicing haematologist or just someone interested in research, there's so many lessons in here. Stephen is such an intelligent, articulate, interesting guy. And I loved every minute of talking to him. And I hope you'll love listening to him. Okay, welcome back to Don't Just Read the Guidelines. I'm joined by Stephen Hibbs, who's someone I met at BSH this year. So the British Society of Haematology Conference. And um, after about five minutes of uh, very interesting chat, Stephen with a big beaming smile and wearing a leather jacket, I think, if I've got my memory correct. I thought this is a really interesting guy. And um after doing a little bit of digging around and asking him to come on the podcast, he definitely is a very interesting guy. So, Stephen, thanks so much for joining me this morning. Thanks, Richard. Nice, nice to be here. Um, so, just to put this into context, we met at BSH because I was involved in the Crucible, and this is something I think you came up with, or we were involved in the in the starting of. Tell tell me a little bit about that and where it came from, because I think it links into your sort of your raison d'être, your your passions. Yeah, thanks. So, so when I was um, an SHO. Um, I, I knew at that point I wanted to be do hematology and I saw a little um, advert for saying um, looking for people to be on the program committee for BSH and I've been along once and I thought you know what, I've got an idea or two let me just put in an application but at this point I didn't have a hematology number I really thought I don't know if they're going to consider me but I, I put a few ideas down and they, they they let me on and so the first meeting I kind of sat there a little bit um, unsure of what to say but I'd been to essentially a similar thing to what the crucible is at the intensive care conference kind of at their, I think it's called state-of-the-art meeting a few years before, and had taken part in that, and basically just suggested something similar, but with a slightly more critical question. So the very first year, that the question that I suggested was, um, how do haematologists do most harm to their patients? And we had a whole bunch of kind of interesting um, things that, that came from that. But yeah, it, it all started really, I think, to, to give them credit to the openness of BSH to be willing both to have me on board as not even yet a haematologist. And then secondly, to kind of come in with, with a question that, that wasn't necessarily the sort of standard um, discourse at, at BSH. But yeah, it, it opened up some really good stuff. And it's been been great to see it run for five years now with 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 lots of great presentations, including your one, which I, I heard repeated on your podcast recently. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been really cool to see it flourish. 
Thank you. Before you came on, we were talking about sort of what, what our passions are. And I think that we, we are aligned. You know, the reason I start this podcast was to try and hear from people who maybe not necessarily have that platform. Um, I get the impression that you're, you're, you're really into, into doing that and getting these voices heard, aren't you? Yeah, I think, um, I guess that it's amazing how many voices could, I think, really provoke us to um to progress in unusual directions if they were given space and, and i think one of the, the real um blessings of being involved on the bsh program committee these last few years has been actually getting to do that a bit so so you know some of the people who've, who've come along to the meet in the last few years have included an artist who's got chronic pain herself who uses art to help chronic pain sufferers to communicate their pain in completely different ways. Um, an anthropologist who is talking about helping us kind of dissect whether we've overstepped the bounds of um, what we do to actually just diagnosing the healthy and and some of the some of the damage we do to people's humanity through that. Um, who else we had? Um, a star rapper with sickle cell disease who came to open this year's year's meeting. Who's who's fantastic? Just you know has such moral authority in, in how he speaks. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and those, those are kind of a handful of people who've come along to some of the sessions I've been involved in. But, you, you know, I, I come across things like, um, there was a brilliant little video made in the States called Keepers of the House, which was uh, a set of interviews with housekeepers, so cleaners on, a, um, on an American ward. I think it was partly cancer and partly other diseases. And sitting down with these, these guys and just hearing about their vocation actually as people who are an integral part of people's um healthcare journeys and how often they come to rooms of patients they know for months they might have brought food in for them they just find it empty and no one's bothered to tell them that the room's empty mm. uh, and just this 10 minute documentary of speaking to cleaners i thought this is the sort of thing i want to be involved in in my career of saying there are a whole bunch of people here involved but we only hear from the, the big dog who's who's the same one who speaks at all the conferences at all, at all the events mm. yes they've got some insights but there's a hundred other people who've got different insights that will help us bring things forward in, in other directions so how how do you think hearing from those people will actually improve patient care because it sounds great and i agree with you but just yeah. to play devil, devil's advocate a little yeah so so i think that um well i think i think some of it is is about some of it is, I guess, about um, almost getting us getting us towards a place where um, we remember how complicated this thing that we call good patient care is. And I think holistic starts to capture it, but but kind of some, somehow doesn't have the same power that it should sometimes. That, that phrase often feels a little bit kind of airy fairy but if, if I can put it in um if I can put it in kind of more concrete terms I, I think about a patient who we treated um at, at one of the hemonc centers that I've worked at who was an asylum seeker with leukemia who was his wife who's also an asylum seeker was pregnant and they were about to be evicted from their home um during his treatment because they were in sort of gray market landlord space and I think about all of the different people who are involved in in his care. And yes, you know, that there were some pretty tricky and important decisions to make around his medical treatment. But actually, it was people like one of the nurses on the wards who'd done a crowdfunding thing to make sure they just had enough cash to buy the basics for their their um, their little one who was who was to come. It was about um, 
a, a volunteer lawyer who helped kind of just get their home office paperwork in the mix so they weren't going to be charged for the treatment he was getting. All, all like a whole bunch of different people who who got involved there. And I think that's maybe a, a kind of extreme case, but I think in, in every case of patient care, it can become very narrowly focused on two or three big treatment decisions, which are interesting, but we probably spend 95% of our conference time and paper time on those two or three decisions, when there's actually about another 100 decisions that make the difference between whether someone flourishes in life or whether life falls apart in the midst of, of the disease they're going through. Do you think that one of the problems trying to, you know, evaluate those questions is that they, they aren't quantitative, are they? You know, that they're, they're, from an academic point of view, it's difficult to address those. You know, how do you, how do you, how do you try and improve that from an, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, what research question is there in that case? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think you're onto something there. Cause I think, I think there's, there's a couple of inherent problems here. First of all, is the measurement thing of saying um, that there's that famous, um, aphorism isn't it of saying not everything that matters can be measured and not everything that can be measured measured matters so something like that which, which i think is is a, a really good thing for us to, to remember um so yeah part of it is that qualitative research is difficult and is something that we're we dabble in i think we, we dabble in it and we think that we do it and actually there's this whole world of social science research out there which I'm just starting to become accustomed to, which is a completely different paradigm, and one that that one that kind of is 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 just a different approach. You know, not hypothesis based, coming in with kind of an open mind, getting ready to be surprised rather than saying, "Okay, is it this or is it not this?" Um, it, and and also, I, I think one of the big problems is that at the end of it, what you might need to do is write a book rather than have a tweet. And and that that's the other thing that's difficult is, is that we become so accustomed to things that can be shown in one. Captain Meyer plot, mm. one tweet, one kind of quick take-home message, when actually there's this phrase in anthropology called thick descriptions, where it's like saying you've got to actually have such a kind of in-depth view of maybe just one person's life, but that one view of that one person will change your practice entirely. And that's a, we do do that. We don't realize we do that. And we do it generally with just individual patients who we meet, but that way of exploring and communicating and investigating is, is not really something that, that we're, we're used to doing in the hematology space. And I agree. I, you know, these, these sorts of observations, you know, you're, you're, you're <clears throat> patient with, with AML, they, they are, they're in, in massively important to, to improving care, but you, 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 as you said, it's very, very difficult to quantify. And any academic publication that comes out of the learnings of that case is not going to be New England Journal. It's not going to be high impact. Do so you think that puts people off doing qualitative research? Because the value and the interest is there, but people can see that, well, you can't, you can't distill this into Kaplan-Marx curve. You can't use this study to sell a drug. There's no money in it. I think that's a, that's a real problem, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think that um, there is an increasing recognition by some kind of leaders in the evidence-based medicine space that essentially what's happened for a while is we've all aimed for research that can be completely generalizable and removed from its context as much as possible. And then the job is faced by clinicians to try and recontextualize that evidence. And it's that second part that actually we don't really know what to do. Like, you know, we can have this beautifully generalizable stat, but then how on earth do you apply that to any one thing? And, and actually qualitative research says, okay, do you know what? We're not even going to bother trying to decontextualize the stuff. We're just going to go for, you know, something that's embodied, that's kind of like almost like an earthy piece of evidence that, that's kind of already stuck in. And then it's, and then it's, it's about there's this kind of phrase in uh, qualitative research of, of transferability, where you say rather than trying to j 
just generalize a thing in an abstract way, you, you're kind of saying, okay, what, what is it about this case that kind of rings true in, in, in what I'm seeing here? But yeah, I, I, so I think that people like Trish Greenhouse, who's a kind of leader in, in um, general practice and um, a lot of public health work, she's a real advocate for um, qualitative work. There's, you know, some of, some of the, the kind of absolute practice changing things that happened in the last 30 years that we wouldn't have noticed, like kind of moving from a, a focus on compliance with medication to moving towards, say, shared decision making. That's all come out of the qualitative space or the kind of birth of the patient safety movement that came out of some anthropological work following American surgeons and how they deal with mistakes they make and how um, that kind of needs to be brought out into the open. There's been some really, you know, massively kind of practice changing insights that's come out of qualitative work, but it's just people don't cite them in the same way. They, they kind of, they're more like little, um, they're like, like little ideas that kind of take root and then, and then like spread throughout medicine. And then everyone kind of often forgets where they came from in the first place. And so you have to, I think, be at peace with that rather than it being something where your paper is going to be cited each time and kind of linearly followed through. And you're going to do a PhD looking at something in sickle um, from a social science perspective. Is That's that right? right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so I have just, um a week or two ago got my funding um Woo! uh yeah exactly it is oh my gosh trying to trying to <laughs> you don't have to tell me <laughs> yeah well yeah exactly like like you, you you know been through this process and trying to do it with alongside work alongside family and and, and just putting together yeah. a proposal and interview anyway yeah it was it was pretty knackered but but i got it and um that is so my, my supervisor is my primary supervisor is a GP ethnographer, um, so yeah. got expertise in qualitative methods, and then a social scientist um, who mostly has worked in HIV um, and kind of other um, patient groups who've faced significant inequities in their care. And then um, Professor Paul Telfer, who's a sickle cell clinician as well, is my other supervisor. So yeah, for that we're going to ask the question: What would good sickle cell crisis care look like? in the hospital setting and what's the barriers to achieving it and that sounds like a really basic question it's like well come on it's obvious it's this it's this but I think all of the common sense answers and everyone's kind of sense of oh the problems you know is it racism is it A&E is it all these things it's all just just random conjecture that everyone has got their little ideas about but this is going to try and follow it through a little bit more like I think maybe kind of picturing what a journalist might do of kind of coming in and trying to like just mm through it's, it's more rigorous than journalism but it, it's, it's more that idea of saying okay i'm gonna in the next few years try and follow this follow this story really with a, a sense of uh, you know set of in-depth interviews um lots of ethnographic observations in a and e on wards in on day units and the whole thing's co-produced so it's i've got funding to pay some patients um to, to kind of in, uh, join me with both the design and, and the analysis and then writing stuff up presenting stuff up um at the end of it which i think is critical really because you know what what do i know about what it feels like to go through a, a sickle cell crisis and and mm-hmm. um but yeah th- that's that's what it's going to be and it's going to be focusing not just on patient experience but on healthcare practitioner experience as well and saying why what do healthcare practitioners experience when they're caring for patients in sickle cell crises and also what do the guidelines and policies and so on speak into all this and are there some unintended consequences how does all this stuff kind of triangulate or not triangulate um yeah it's going to be it's going to be interesting it's going to be a lot to learn it's going to be fascinating. We we one hundred percent have to talk about that when you've done it, or, or whilst you're in the midst of it, it might be more interesting. And um, if I can do anything to help from a Birmingham perspective, please, please let me know. Um, I think all this follows on nicely to some work you've done with the James Lind Alliance. Um, 
And actually your research and academic output is pretty eclectic, even more eclectic than mine, which mine was eclectic out of necessity rather than anything else. Um, so, so you've done some work with the James and the Alliance, which is, and, and the paper is setting priorities for research in blood donation and transfusion. Outcome of the James Lind Alliance priority setting partnership. So um, rather than me droning on about this, maybe can you explain a little bit about the James Lind Alliance? I mean, I can tell you who James Lind was, as that was in my crucible talk. He was a uh, British Navy surgeon who essentially discovered the cure for scurvy. But interestingly, James Lind observed that sailors treated with citrus fruit did better and recovered from scurvy. But then he went away and and then used his own humour-inspired model and real, and then thought that scurvy was due to blocked sweat glands. So even though he made an astute observation, it shows the power of doctrine in um, in in overcoming that observation and, and, and perpetuating falsehoods, really. Um, anyway, that's complete aside. So that's James Lind. So there's, a, there's an organisation called the James Lind Alliance, which is, um, having been on the website and looked at various things and spoken to people involved, a wonderful organization and i love their i love that they think what they're trying to do tell me about them what they're trying to do yeah so so they're basically i think it's about um whereas so what i mentioned briefly in, in my so plan phd where you've got co-production as in patient involvement in in a single piece of research this is now about saying okay who gets to choose which questions get funded that, that's really what it comes down to is saying what are I think I think the, the phrase they use is something like what are the most important um, treatment uncertainties in a particular field um, to patients, their, their carers and families, um, and and then to the clinicians treating them. So, so it's about kind of saying, all right, rather than just the the kind of guys who, who currently hold the um hold the sort of authority in, in the labs that are going to be researching things or, or going to kind of be on the trial steering committees what do people care about that really matters um that might not come into that and so so the first i heard about it was a um someone i met was doing one on cleft lip and palate many years ago and they were saying you know in the plastic surgery community it was all about which which kind of microsurgical technique to use and actually one of the most important, I think it might have been even number one, but one of the kind of most important things that came out of that project was what interventions help children to integrate in their first few years in school um, mm. who have cleft lip, lip and palate. And like, that is a research question. Uh, and, and that's the sort of thing that some people might poo-poo and say, well, that's, you know, that's not our job to, to look at. But why isn't it? Like, if, if we're going to be caring for patients with cleft lip and palate, that really matters to people. Matters more than this suture versus this suture or whatever. So anyway... That, that the process is quite a um, standardized one. Um, it, it takes a while. I think it took us about three or four years to go through it, but, but essentially it's kind of, you do uh, several rounds of um, going out to the community that's involved. In this case, it was um, people who have blood transfused regularly and donors. So it's kind of both donation and transfusion um, end. And clinicians involved in their care. And you try and go through as many groups as possible. So we went through lots of the kind of, you know, groups like sickle cell society, um, thalassemia groups, myeloma groups, um, like all, all, all sorts of groups, kind of, kind of surgical groups, um, obstetric groups, j just to kind of try and then collect everyone's questions. And everyone's questions come in raw. They don't come in like research questions. They just come in like, um, is it safe? Or, or you, you know, so, so some of them are kind of really basic um, and some of them are, are more nuanced than that. And then what you do is through several rounds, you try and convert those into a, a, then a list of, you know, perhaps um, just 80 or so. And then you do a, a kind of further priority setting 
exercise and then at the end you do a big workshop with lots of people and and, and try and kind of work out um how to how to kind of um raise all of these and the whole thing is done with a steering group that, that i was involved in at the time um through uh, my my kind of previous academic supervisor i've done an academic f1 or academic two with a blood transfusion professor in oxford mike murphy and we just one morning we, we both heard this um james Lind alliance on on the radio and said why don't we you know can, can we do this for blood transfusion and blood donation and we ended up with such great people we're doing with including a man who's in his 80s or 90s with who's a jehovah's witness man um who i was partnered with to do to kind of work through a lot of these uncertainties and trying to do that together was an amazing research experience. And so at the end of it all, you basically end up with this quite democratic um, list of what really matters to people across the whole community. And for example, one question that I don't think would ever have come up otherwise was what are the psychological effects of having the having a blood transfusion? I, I never thought about that question at all, but that was one of the things that kind of came out of the exercise. And then the NIHR use some of these ranked kind of um, priorities to then help them um, to decide about funding um, research going forward. So I'll just read out the top findings from that paper because it is interesting. So how do we increase minority groups blood donation? How, to dis- how do we discourage clinicians using blood transfusions inappropriately? How do we minimize wastage? How do we optimize management of major hemorrhage? Uh, how do we empower patients about their choices around blood transfusion? How do we identify patients with anemia early so we can avoid transfusion? How can we uh, give blood transfusions more safely and more timely? What medical conditions make it unsafe to be a blood donor? And what effect, what ways are effective to educate the public on, on blood transfusion? So yeah, very eclectic mix. And they're not, the, the, the one thing that struck me about that list is that the, these are mostly system problems and require qualitative methodology to, to ask some academic questions about them. They are, the only real optimal management question of ma- major hemorrhaging conditions, meaning that someone is is safe to donate, are questions that, that require quantitative solutions, aren't they? And that, that I guess, is a, an observation and, and an output of the fact that you had all this patient involvement. Do you think there's a danger with involving patients in research questions like this and trying to direct research that if it went completely towards patients directing research you you lose something because clearly there are important clinical questions that patients do not understand yeah of course we can empower patients to try and understand them Mm. but again that's another you know that's one of your questions how do we how do we do that do you think we'll do you think there's a danger of losing something yeah i i think i think with a jla approach it is um we probably were getting at least 50% kind of clinician involvement throughout as well. So, so, so this, this you know, example of that final meeting, we had a trauma surgeon there. We had um, a few hematologists. We, 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 had, we had had a number of people who were still kind of actually having to almost defend to a group of the public to say, look, this is why this does matter. And, and there was lots of conversation happening there. But yeah, I think a... Um, the, the area I've thought about this most then actually is in um, is in kind of research um, co-production because I, I was a few people asked me when I was mentioning about the sickle cell project that I was um, planning saying oh you know what if you have patients involved and they they don't understand kind of what it's like to be a clinician or they don't understand um, why you know the most basic one of, of why you can't just give more pain relief you know and why there's some some problems involved in that and, and I think I think it's about getting beyond the kind of 
really superficial relationship where you kind of feel like you can't push back it's like of course you can like like these are these become your collaborators it's a bit like if you're in a lab meeting right it, it, in, and and someone says oh what about this and then someone says no that doesn't make any sense like, like we've got to do it this way and you have to start with your treadmill eggshells a bit because you don't know each other but it's about kind of getting to a place where you've got the same level of of kind of research relationship and and parity where it's not about power imbalance where you're kind of saying okay patients just get to veto everything no they don't you, you know j- just as we don't either and so it's about getting to that point where you've got real trust in relationships where you can actually push back against each other and work stuff through and where you're both responsible for the end it's not just the patients can say oh i don't know that and i don't know this it's like okay well how are we going to solve it like we've we got to do this together and i think that's that's where you want to get to to the point where and, and yeah that's hard that, that's really hard but where you you can you you can kind of not hide your professional knowledge under a um you know whatever the phrase is. You, you know you don't have to hide that away and patients don't have to hide their lived experience away and neither is more important than the other and you you kind of are at a level where you can you can rigorously debate that i, I think i think that's that's where you want to get to okay i guess that question came from reflecting on that list and i'm not sure that's the list that i would personally come up with of course there's a there's a there's an importance in involving patients and i i guess I, I I just look at that list and think, are there are there other questions that maybe maybe could be in there that would more likely improve outcomes? I guess that's the question, isn't it? Yeah. But that's not what you're trying to do. Mm. You're just trying to find out what's the what what people's priorities are, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I think it's important to say with the process as well that you end up you end up with the top ten, but you also end up with all of the all of the kind of uncertainties that are recognised that are are kind of registered within IHR and kind of become like you know saying these are just a list of the treatment uncertainties these are ones that came to the top in this process but the process is messy it's not perfect I I don't think anyone's fortunately we're not in a situation where it's like okay those are now the only questions that matter but I think it is it is a more of a corrective at the moment to the sort of traditional way which is where the you know the 20 big wiggers get together from around the world and say hey what what do we care about the most and then that's the that's the agenda um so there's yeah there's there's a balance here and um i think i think it's it's good that the organization exists i'm sure we'll have something better in 10 years but it's 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 a good start do you know if your papers actually influenced any further research or any further research funding so good question no is the answer i, I partly because i that was sort of the last thing i've really done in the transfusion yeah. space that sort of end well, didn't really end a um it just ended a period of time really then and so i i don't know um it's it's got a a few citations if that's something to go by but not it's certainly not been something that's kind of picked up all over the place um so no i i, I don't know and I, I don't quite know what happens next in terms of exactly how nihr use it apart from publishing it and saying okay here, here are important questions um i'm i think a piece of work that either should be done or hopefully has been done would be to follow up all of these yeah. and to say, okay, you know, what, what happened next in the story, particularly for ones that kind of came out maybe 10, 15 years ago to say, okay, how much progress has been made on these and does it look like it shifted the, um, the, the sort of conversation, the, the research agenda at all? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Okay. I'm going to change tack um, because you have many interests as do I. Um, we met again online a couple of weeks ago. Um, when you invited uh, one of us uh, from Heemstar along to the global BSH special interest group 
Um, how did you get involved with that? And I, I know you've been involved with amending some guidelines for uh, South Sudan. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is this is this is this sounds interesting. So give me give me a yeah, give me a bit okay. of background. So, so I'll I'll talk a bit about the global um, human group first, and then then in the South Sudan um, guidelines. So so um, there is a remarkable person called Professor Imelda Bates, who is one of my great heroes in hematology for so many reasons. She's a real just a real inspiration in so many ways. And um, when I was when I was an SHO and trying to work out what I wanted to do in my career, I, I knew I wanted to have at least partly a focus on low middle income countries. And I had several people tell me, don't do hematology because it's too, it's, it's just not, it's, you know, it doesn't work. You, you know, it's, it's high cost. Go and think about ID or anesthetics or all sorts of other things. And then it was partly through finding out about ML debates and the work that was happening in the sort of global hematology space that I thought, oh, actually, okay, no, this, these things are compatible. And so when I then started as a hematology reg, they were putting out a call for people to help get a thing off the ground called the HVO um, BSH project. So HVO is Health Volunteers Overseas. It's a bit like Medicines on Frontier, but um, has a bit more of a kind of individual hospital focus. So it's not so much disaster relief, but it's more about saying, okay, how can you set up a long-term relationship with a hospital in a low middle income country to help over a long period of time to support clinicians to improve the, the care they're doing there. And so, so we, we are partnered with a hospital in Cambodia and we just got the project off the ground. So I, I, I and a friend of mine, Abbas, said, Let, let's, let's get involved and, and try and see if we can, um, we can get this, this off the ground. Went through a lot of kind of administration, governance stuff, um, got everything agreed got some funding to provide some bursaries to, to cover it and then got our first two volunteers out and then COVID hit. So it's kind of been a little bit um, kiboshed for the last couple of years. We've, mm. we've got a virtual thing going on, but it's it really a lot of it's about relationship and that's hard to do virtually, but that will, that will come back. So because of that role in um, this project, I've got to sit in on the um, global hematology meetings and there's just some cool stuff happening. You, you know, there's some really, really interesting things happening and, and one of the things that came up which is the South Sudan guidelines was that actually a, a friend through church funny enough a kind of a friend of a friend is involved in um, setting up guidelines in in particular in areas where there's particularly little medical infrastructure and he'd been tasked by WHO to help to draft some guidelines for essentially non, non-medical, kind of not doctor level trained um, health staff, but people who would be manning the treatment centers in South Sudan. And it was it was basically designed to be a kind of reference guide for if, if you just needed one book that was gonna tell you about how to treat most of the major things that were gonna come in through your treatment centers. And he just said to me, any chance you or some people in hematology can have a look at this and just just give me a bit of feedback and say say what else needs to come through and that, that was a process that was happening kind of separately it wasn't just him to write it and, and send it in but they didn't really have any specific hematology involvement and so I had a look at that and, and so did some of the others on the um on the special interest group and just it was it was nice to be able to just you know talk about transamic acids and and you know, the big trials where that had come in and, and put that into the guidelines, talk about hydroxyurea and, and how there was now such good evidence for using that in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And, um, you know, the, the, a lot of the previous concerns about infection and malaria, actually, if anything, it seemed to reduce the rates of, of those um, in, was it the REACH? I can't remember the, the name of the trial. There was a particular trial um, that, that, that had shown that. Um, 
a, a few other bits and pieces basically but but it was um it was quite a a scary thing because you, you're sort of looking at this and thinking okay whatever i say here potentially might have quite a big a big um impact in a good way but also in a way that feels like well who am i i'm just a, a hemorrhage in east london like why should i be contributing here but i think i think my reflection on that now is that um actually by particularly because there was other people around you could have a look at it too and just say does this make sense actually you can do stuff even when you're a hemorrhage just to point out the kind of big stuff that's been coming out it's not about kind of all of the the nuances about saying look if there's a couple of good interventions that that are almost definitely safe in this context let's just encourage that and get that in there and so yes so that 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 was published about three or four years ago and it's something we're hoping to try and set up some links with hematologists to, to do more in the future to just say when these guidelines have been put together, it really is a sounding board to kind of point towards relevant guidelines, relevant um, management strategies. And yeah. Is that something you'd ultimately want to get into a BSH guideline? You know, any new BSH guideline needs to have adaptations as an appendix that can be used in resource poor settings. Yeah, maybe. It's it's a good question. I'm not sure because I think that it's a little bit like um, if you compare a US guideline to a UK guideline, they're going to be quite different, right? Because the funding yeah. structures are so different. Let's, let's say in myeloma, in, in I'm, some, I'm sure in some parts of America, you, you, you're chucking like seven drugs first line and you just, everyone's getting whole genome sequencing. And, you know, like this this sort of madness, like five five autographs and an allograph. You know, I'm exaggerating, but but there's that sort of money flow. I'm sure you're exaggerating, to be honest. Um, I think that sounds fairly <laughs> accurate. I think it involves a dartboard as well. <laughs> and so... um. So, you, you know, it, it's, it's going to be even into sort of rich, you know, resource rich settings, the guidelines are going to be different. So I, I think it's about, I think it's first of all about recognising that every situation is different. And I think it's, I think it's probably more about where we want to get to eventually is, is a place of mutual learning as well. So, so I, I think often so far in, in the work we've done in the um, global SIG, it's often been about sort of UK clinicians supporting clinicians in resource poor areas. And, and that's really important and that's, that's really good. But I think one of the things I've really learned from Imelda is the power of the insights that are on the ground in resource poor settings that actually are critical for us to use here. There's some, just some brilliant work. You know, she, she's supervised I think about five or six PhD students from, from Africa who come up with just brilliant research questions, brilliant um sort of things that we would never even have thought to look at, like, is it safe to give malaria positive blood in transfusions to patients? You know, that, that, that's, we would never ethically be able to, to do that study here, but that study really matters in, in lots of parts of the world where malaria is very widespread. And the answer is, it's safe. I, I, and actually that they did some really great work to look at that. So I think, I think that, yes, we need to work towards a place where there's more, some of the guideline development expertise that is, has, is here can be, um, we can support that expertise growing in, in other places. Um, but I don't think that a kind of one size fits all, here's the British guideline and here's the kind of resource poor guideline. I don't think that's going to be the way to do it. I think it's going to be more about, yeah, setting up long-term relationships and partnerships. How do you choose the countries? Or is this... For like um, the HBO project, for example, the, the Cambodia one. Yeah, yeah. Well, that actually was more of a, just what infrastructure already existed. So HBO already had some partnerships with a few countries and ASH were already supporting a few hospitals. And they had this one 
particular hospital in Cambodia that didn't yet have a kind of partner, but really had asked for that. So in that case, it wasn't really us um, choosing. It was just us saying, okay, there's a need. Let's let's respond to that. But I think that most of it in in sort of really stuff I've overheard, I've been involved very little in in most of the global work, but stuff I've overheard is it tends to just be pre-existing relationships, like where clinicians have perhaps... um, have got either family links in a particular country and they or or just have kind of made a relationship with one hospital 20 years ago and then gone back and visited you know 20 times that then forms a really really solid base to then do something useful because because the worst thing is to parachute in think you've got this great teaching program or this great thing to give and then cause all sorts of unintended consequences where you just don't really get what's going on and where you've actually got those meaningful relationships where someone can say, I don't know, that didn't really land as you thought it was going to, that then starts to provide, you know, some sort of corrective to then say, right, let's actually do something useful where there can be some, some back and forth here. Okay. Unintended consequences is my phrase of the month. I think it's a really interesting thing, but, you know, we, we all try and do things to help, but you look at, you know, you look at Brexit and you look at big socioeconomic things there were always unintended consequences or if you were cynical intended consequences um but clearly this is the case in medicine um okay let's let's move on again um just because i'm galloping through your life and career here um i having stalked you online a little bit um i came across your very interesting writings in hemisphere um how did you get involved with hemisphere uh, is this another thing you're on a an editorial group for <laughs> yeah yes so so this was um this was uh, all, all these things feel i'm sure this is probably the case for lots of lots of people but like they all just sort of happen again in a in a happy unintended consequence way really here so so, so this started where i'd been sort of get back, getting back into reading fictional literature a bit again and had read this book called The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy, which um, I don't know I don't know if you've read it, but it's, it's a wonderful short story. It's about 60 pages long and it is a both terrifying and beautiful picture of what care for the dying person can look like in its best and worst is how I summarise it. And I was so struck by the power of this book that I, I did a few reading sessions, both in, um, uh, I, was, I was working at Bart's at the time, so, so we, we did a kind of shared reading session. I just chose like five excerpts and, and we, we each were about two minutes long, got different people to read it, and then we discussed it. Did it in, in a few different hospitals and, and just as a way to try and get us thinking about how badly and how well care can go for, for a dying patient. And Tolstoy is an incredibly wise and... Um, just just remarkable author so so I did this and then um consultant at the hospital I worked with said to me have you ever thought about writing and I said what what do you mean and he said well you know this is you might find this sort of discussion actually works well in in a sort of essay piece so I said all right let let me do that and he happened to be one of the editors for Hemisphere this um this journal this is sort of the EHAR journal um and so I wrote a draft, submitted them, and they liked it and asked me for a few more. So I did, I did a, about three kind of um, three of these uh, reflections on fictional literature, one on the book Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, one on the book Cancer Ward by Solzhenitsyn, um, the uh, Russian dissident, um, each of which kind of, I guess, were really helpful in like defamiliarizing us from things that we 
might have this kind of superficial sense of familiarity with in caring for patients, but kind of brought stuff to the surface that we, we wouldn't otherwise notice. So I really enjoyed doing that. And then after that, they asked me um, about applying for a role as a scientific editor there. So I've been doing that since. And it basically, it, it's really nice because I've got, I've got some free reign in, in what I write. And so I've been able to cover some, some kind of other topics. And I'll probably do a bit more literature stuff, but, but um, just, I guess, back to this thing that we started with of trying to bring in questions and perspectives that are outside the normal discourse in hematology. And um, that, that's been a, a space to explore that. Okay. One of your writings in Hemisphere is on bone marrow. Um, the love-hate relationship that I have with bone marrow comes to the fore here. Um, clearly, they're a very powerful diagnostic tool. But my, sort of my impression is they're probably overdone, overused, too many requests for them, too many willy-nilly requests, too many requests that don't really um, consider the unintended consequences um your 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 piece is talks about how common pain is and i think one of the most pertinent things that i saw was the most cited series about pain in bone marrow is from clinicians perspective rather than patients and that's a really powerful observation it's a really powerful observation because why is that the case why why is that big series from 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 a clinician's perspective i know it's sort of 15 20 years old but should we should we be doing better with bone marrow yeah i think it's um I, I i really i really think that this is an example of where who gets to set the agenda of what matters and what doesn't matter in research um is i'll just because i'm going to butt in because you, 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 I'm sure you're going to probably say what I think I'm going to say. Um, you, you talk to patients about their leukemia or their myeloma or whatever, and someone with AML, the thing that they hate the most and the thing that they remember 10 years later is that bone marrow. And it's often the first bone marrow. They don't remember feeling sick from chemo. They don't remember the shock of being told they had leukemia. They remember as clear as day imprinted on their mind how exquisitely terrible that bone marrow was now whether and I, I would rate myself as someone who's pretty pretty reasonably good at doing bone marrows most of the time um and someone who really cares about not hurting patients and i would probably say that it's the bit of the, the job that i hate the most um i telling people that bad news yeah fine get a bit of a buzz out of it weirdly but doing bone marrows i never went into medicine to hurt people um I, I, is it, is it, it we, I, I'm going to answer the question. I think we're doing, we're doing so many things wrong with bone marrows. I think the whole thing is, is, is crazy. You know, you're doing, you're shoving a mat, what is essentially a massive trephine needle into someone who's awake, barely anesthetized. Um, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's one of those things where, um, it's, we're sort of, um encultured into it when we start as a new registrar or perhaps as an SHO, you're sort of encultured into this is just how it is like that, that's that's the no one's no one quite puts it in that way but like i remember early on speaking to all my speaking to my education as well as to be like am i just terrible at this like i feel like i i think i think i maybe am hyper empathetic in some ways about pain but i would like i would honestly find myself wincing every time i could feel the patient wince and i was you know I think probably a little bit cack-handed, like I'm not the most dexterous person. And, and over time I've got better, but I, I would find at the start that um, 
I dread going in. I, I did, did a day unit job to start when I just dread when I had several lists. And, and I think that, I think what it is, is that if you've got someone who's really proficient at bone marrows and, and who's probably got more of a sense about what helps to relax a patient and, um, you know, di different interventions that can really help with that. And, and I talk about some of those in, in that paper. Um, and you've got a patient who's relatively thin, who's relatively relaxed, who's generally relatively a bit older, um, who's just got a, a fat distribution that tends to go towards their belly than their hips. Well, if, if all of these things are in place, they can be all right. You, you know, they, they, they're, yeah. still, they're still painful. And I think we need to use that word pain rather than all the different euphemisms that we use, but, but they can be all right. But I think that what then happens is that, that you get this discourse where if a patient after a while just goes, oh, please, like, like, I don't think I can keep going through this. Please, can you sedate me? Or please, can you do something else? There's this like victim shaming, I think that goes on in, in maybe not to the patient's face, but like everyone kind of tuts and go, oh, I've got to go to find an anesthetist now. I've got to go and, you know, we, like, certainly my sense is that I've worked in, we don't have a good system for doing sedated bone marrow. It's always like an ad hoc okay. thing. And there's this sense of like, well, they should be able to, everyone else can cope. But if you don't fit those criteria or, even there's, there's probably even le levels of complexity here where for whatever reason your your story in life so far means that you can't intrinsically trust health professionals and there's lots of very very good reasons that or figures of authority that's going to massively change your experience of, of a bone marrow as well compared to if you've if you generally had a fairly benign relationship with with medical professionals all your life all of these things are going to play into whether or not you experience pain in that setting or not but but what we need is some compassion to saying okay well if that was me who was there who had a fat distribution that happened to place a lot of fat around the back of my hips who happened to be a bit more anxious who perhaps experienced pain in a different way who was you know the bone marrow is being done that by that day by someone like sd3 me who wasn't that great at them all of those things mean that it is going to be really pretty horrible and that could be avoided through training through various interventions through just taking it seriously in a way that some other specialties take their procedures seriously, that anaesthetists take their, their kind of patient experience side seriously, where for us, it's just like, just get the bone marrow done. And the interesting bit is looking down the microscope or the mm -hmm. interesting bit is the, the decision that comes at the end of it, rather than actually being a good hematologist involves real craft, like patient-centered craft, even in the procedure itself. It's interesting that, if you go and do pediatric hematology, all the kids are anaesthetized for bone marrow. And then they come to the teenage young adult and they're 16 and they get gas and air and some, some lidocaine. And yeah, they love the gas and air, but it's crazy. You know, what's, what's the difference between a 15 and a half year old and a 16? Nothing. What's the difference between a 16 and a half year old who's got acute leukemia and a 35 year old? Nothing. Well, certain things, but you know, yeah. everyone regresses, everyone regresses to, and wants their mum when they're, when they're poorly. Yeah. Um, I, to my mind, and, and it comes back to one of the earlier questions, you know, what would what would a sick, an ideal inpatient sickle cell crisis look, um, care look like? You know, there's a question there. What would an ideal bone marrow service look like? And I'm pretty sure it doesn't involve six bone marrows, half an hour per slot, bit of lidocaine, two minutes, bang, bang, bang. Yeah, uh, it can't it can't do. Yeah. Um, and if this is the thing that our patients anecdotally are complaining about the most, then we are duty bound to do something about it. Yeah. So if anyone anyone listening wants to do something about this, um, send me a message. Let's let's do it. I think I think there's there's for anyone who wants to pick this up, there really are some 
fairly easy things that could be done to start with. I think like um, some of the interventions that are really pretty well evidenced include things like just providing relaxing music in procedures, which I do for every bone marrow and intrathecal now. Um, the use of tramadol um, at a fairly low dose to reduce aspiration pain. Um, the use of buffered lidocaine. You know, the lidocaine we use is like pH. It's not like pH four. It's like, of course, it feels like a bee sting. In in New Zealand and Australia, it's buffered. It, it lasts a couple of months rather than a couple of years, and that's why that's why we have what we have here. But you know, th that would be straightforward. So that those are things there. But then even things like um, properly thinking about how do we do training? That, like that is that is something that. Um, could be improved significantly kind of the development of some basic simulation models to think about you know language and how we explain things to, to think about just just this whole field i, I feel like um yeah th th there's a lot that could be done it's almost like you're expected to be able to do a bomar in the first you should be independent in the first month of st3 and i think it's completely wrong interestingly that a physician physician's associate here at, at, uh, in birmingham um, a few years ago, it was excellent and was learning to do bone marrows. And he was told that he had to do 100 supervised bone marrows before he could do it. And I thought at the time, I thought that's a bit, bit crazy. And then when you go through it, you realize that there's so many, so much human variability. Mm. There are complications that you can that can occur. You know, I've personally seen three bleeds, mm. of which have been 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 fairly bad. Mm. Um, not all because of me, one definitely because of me. Um, and um so I think the complication rate may may well be under underreported as well because you know how many bone marrows have been involved in I don't know about a thousand who knows, um, but to my mind you know I put I put music on, um, I, I um, said to our advanced nurse practitioner in in Stoke who um, who does the bone marrows I said to have you considered putting music on she says uh, yeah but I've I've tried to do this before and there was a real problem with the the rights to the music. <laughs> I said, I said, Carol, just just put it on your phone. Just put it on your phone. She'd she'd gone through trust governance and all sorts. So just just look, there's there's times to break the rules. There's times yeah. to break the rules. Yeah. And this is this is definitely one of my gym. My gym doesn't have a PRS certificate. I think you'd be okay. <laughs> this, is the, this is the problem, you know, real world, the real world intervening in the real world is not a trial it's not the same but there yeah. are there is a randomized trial that shows music is uh, is beneficial yeah um, similarly tramadol and buffered saline so at the very least we should be giving music tramadol and buffered saline shouldn't we these are the evidence-based interventions i don't know how much intervent um evidence there's entonox um yeah much much less clear actually i i, I think i think something that entonox communicates particularly if patients have in the past not had it and then are giving it it communicates a sense of being taken seriously but like mm. i think i think that's probably something it does do um but i'm not sure it's the best i, I think there's probably better ways to communicate that um but the trials definitely weren't weren't so clear on whether intonox did anything beyond beyond that if in an ideal world money's no object time's no object stuffing's no object how would you do an afternoon bone marrow list i think i would want ideally to at least have spoken on the phone if not in person to the patient before the day to to kind of properly talk through what was going to be involved and um and just so they heard my voice and they knew who was going to be doing it on the day i, I think that that kind of relationality would would be key um so some time allotted for that um i think probably having some sort of nice waiting room that's away from just the the general throng of everyone coming in for their transfusions of chemo or whatever else mm -hmm. 
that happens in, in centres I've worked in, where it's just a calm place. There's a nice chair. You wait there, and then you get brought through. There's someone who sits with you, ideally a family member or or a couple of family members. But if not, then um, perhaps the nurse or nursing assistant who can talk to you the whole way through, because that definitely makes a big difference to have have that kind of human interaction and distraction. You have your tramadol an hour before. If you're feeling anxious, you can have um, a dose of lorazepam or whatever uh, an hour before as well. If you're someone who um, part, you know, perhaps a few minutes in is really struggling despite those interventions, there's then someone on hand who can then provide a bit of IV midazolam um, and and help help get you through through the particularly difficult bit. Um, there's ultrasound on hand for if, if you've got fat distribution that uh, makes it more difficult to find um, underlying bone. Um, <laughs> there's some that's been used in some settings, and I think that's worth thinking about and expertise in delivering local anesthetic where there is fat distribution around the hips, um, sort of using, I think particularly using kind of extra long LP needles and, and ways of kind of getting anesthetic um, around the bone there, because that can be really, really problematic. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I think probably an attitude or almost by all of that collectively, as well as each of the individual things being beneficial, an attitude throughout of saying, we understand that this is difficult and painful and we're taking you seriously and we're going to honour the fact that you're going to go through something difficult this afternoon and we're going to create time and attention that you don't feel like you're just some add-on that's got to be got through. But, you know, at the end of it, there's a sense of I was supported to get through something difficult, but something that, that was necessary. Um, yeah, that, that, that's how I picture it. Perfect. I think that's a lovely way to round off what has been an awesome conversation. I've pretty much enjoyed every minute of it, minute, minute of it. I haven't felt out of my depth like I have in some podcasts where I've been talking about the intricacies of DNA, of RNA transcription and all sorts. So <laughs> that's the nice, that is the nice thing we're talking about, qualitative research and these sorts of projects is they are accessible and it is possible to involve patients, isn't it? Um, so Stephen, thank you so much. I'm really, really looking forward to seeing what you do next. I'm really looking forward to hearing about the output from the PhD. Um, and, you know, let's work together on something. Yeah, thanks so much, man. Really, really good to be here. Awesome. Take care. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is for education and entertainment only and should not be taken as medical advice. I certainly cannot guarantee the factual accuracy of any of the content but if you do have any constructive criticism, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. If you like the show, please take the time to write a review on iTunes, Google, or wherever else you listen. It will really help others find the podcast. See you soon.